Our reading today comes from 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this word that we have heard, and we thank you for uh, the testimony that we have just heard as well of um, your gospel of peace and your cleansing message coming and healing the broken, Lord, healing the lame. Um, Lord, even as we sit now in your house, God, would you open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold the wondrous things of your law. May we see in this scripture Christ coming down to us, lame and crippled, Lord, and bringing us to your table, God. Um, And as we meet you today, Lord, may you replace the desires which we just confessed, Lord, for the desires of the worldly things, for a desire for your word and a desire for your spirit and a love for your son, Lord. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Oh, my heart is a mix of encouragement and sadness as I stand to speak God's word to you. There's a sadness that's here in this text, obviously with the providence of Mephibosheth, but there is a there is such a joy that comes through the, the amazing story of God's grace. There's a sadness when I think of what we just heard from David and Nancy Guthrie about the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. And there's so many stories right now in this room of those who are suffering. You know what's going on in your life. There's not a pew in here that's not touched with it in some regards. And for some of you, we've shared that very deeply together. But Just before I checked my phone, just before I came into worship, 
And I heard a report that the worst mass shooting in U.S. history happened in Orlando just last night. You may not have heard this. Fifty people were killed, um, many more injured. And um, I want to stop and just pray for that situation right now. Will you pray with me before we come into God's Word? Father in heaven, um, I, my own heart, very grieved, very uh, burdened in hearing this word of what has happened in Orlando, Florida. Lord, I don't know the circumstances uh, behind it right now, but I know there are many, many people hurting. And there were 50 souls that were taken in that killing. And Lord, it grieves us, it breaks our hearts. It makes us ask questions of why and what do we do about this. And it makes all of what we are about to do, listen to your word, that much more important. And so, Father, I simply pray right now that you would send whatever servants are needed to come into that hurting and broken situation as those families and those friends and that community walks through the valley of the shadow of death, I pray that they would not go headlong into worldly despair, but that it would be the kind of despair that leads them into the only hope that's beyond the grave, and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that he, the only mediator between God and man, would indeed mediate this situation through whatever servants, through whatever means that he desires, making the glory of the gospel known there in Orlando, Florida. Lord, so many servants of the Lord down there whom I know, I pray for them. And preachers who will be standing up in the pulpits this morning in that city, show Jesus to them. Bring, bring renewal, bring revival, and capture the souls of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this story with Mephibosheth, what an amazing story, but boy, a story that is full of sadness and grief on the front end, isn't it? There's a phrase that the world uses. That sometimes we use it colloquially. The phrase, fallen from grace. You know that phrase? He's fallen from grace. She's fallen from, from grace. It's usually used when a political figure or or a business leader or someone very well known in the world something comes out about them that shows us a darker side as to who they are. We had thought they were an upstanding person. We had held them in high regard, maybe had them on a pedestal of some sort. And all kinds of other stories came um, from behind the curtain of their life. And then all of a sudden, that person's reputation, what that person stands for, who we thought that person was, is totally different than we expected. And we say... They've fallen from grace. There was a few years ago when Fox Sports actually did a little series entitled Falling from Grace. It was cataloging some of the 
meteoric kind of rises among American athletes and then the meteoric kind of falls that a number of those athletes have had. And the kind of falls were not tearing an ACL and being out for the season or somehow or another coming down with a degenerative disease. It was, we thought this person was really reputable and we found out something different. I'm going to list just a couple of names. The purpose of listing these names are in no way, just so you can hear the listing of these names correctly. They're not intended in any way to denigrate the persons that are mentioned. It is to acknowledge that you'll know these stories and immediately won't require any comment on my part. You will say, I get it. Pete Rose. Michael Vick. Tanya Harding, O.J. Simpson, Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, Joe Paterno. That was just the beginning of the series. Fallen from grace. People whom we looked up to, people whom we esteemed, people who were at the top of their game, who when the stories about their lives came out, fell from grace. Socially speaking, societally speaking. Now if we were running a series of biblical stories entitled Falling from Grace, there would be a number of names that could be mentioned, but I do believe the story of Mephibosheth would be part of the Fallings from Grace series. But Mephibosheth's falling from grace is really different from the kind that were just listed because it wasn't what Mephibosheth did that caused a falling from grace in his own life. It was what was done to Mephibosheth that caused a falling from grace, a number of circumstances and a number of situations that led this very young child down a path of tremendous darkness that we would, by almost any standard, call tragedy. And we would say about it that Mephibosheth was a kind of victim of circumstance. Now we'll redeem that language later in the course of this message, but on the front end, that's a very appropriate way to understand the situation of Mephibosheth. As we look at this text, we want to consider it under three headings. And I want you to see these headings as almost like three movements of a whole. We're going to watch Mephibosheth's fall from grace. And then we're going to watch Mephibosheth's fall into grace. And then we're going to watch grace rise over all of our falls by the end of our time together today. Fall from grace, fall into grace, grace rising over all of our falls. Now let's look at Mephibosheth's fall from grace. Who is this Mephibosheth besides having a fantastic name? And and I will probably over the course of this sermon mess it up at some point. You're free to laugh when I do. But, but kids, later today, say it five times fast. Somewhere in the car, it's a fun name. Who is Mephibosheth apart from the, the funniness of the name? Well, he is the son of Jonathan. He is the grandson 
of Saul. He is of the royal line of the people of Israel. He is the proverbial boy born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He is from privilege. He is destined for power. He is one marked out as one who will live the life that many of us dream of. He is the next generation of what would have been, should it have been, the dynasty of Saul, had God not had very different plans. And yet, in one faithful moment, this boy of royalty sees the entirety of his life come crashing down to the ground. I want you to see three falls in Mephibosheth's life. Three falls. The first one, we've already reflected on together a few weeks ago from 1 Samuel 31. It was when his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, were killed on Mount Gilboa during a fierce battle with the Philistines. Both his father and his grandfather lost in an instant and the house of Saul crashing down as Saul and Jonathan go the way of all of the earth and this young boy Mephibosheth who we don't even know exists at this point in the text when they die at the end of 1 Samuel is but five years of age. And yet his life has just radically changed. And not for the better. He's at the beginning of a downward spiral. But there's a second fall for Mephibosheth, and it's right around this same event. In fact, it's about when this news of this event hits Jezreel's ears. Jezreel was the Mephibosheth's nurse, the one who was taking care of Mephibosheth actually during the battle on Mount Gilboa. When she hears the word of Jonathan's death and of Saul's death, she knows what that means. She knows that the kingship of Israel has been entirely compromised. The house of Saul is falling. Israel is open to attack. And anyone who's connected to being a relative of Saul now becomes someone who could be a, ta a target for attack. And so what does she do? Well, she does exactly what any nurse would do in those moments. She scoops up Mephibosheth and in her haste is about to take off to a place of safety except her worst nightmare happened. We read about it in 2 Samuel 4. Mephibosheth slipped through her fingers and fell to the ground. And in his fall, he was crippled for life. It's mentioned twice within the text, the very beginning of the news of Mephibosheth, and then at the very end of our text, it's actually emphasized here in 2 Samuel 9 that we acknowledge this is a cripple when we're talking about the story of Mephibosheth. That's his second fall. But listen, it gets worse. By no fault of his own, in his third fall, Mephibosheth is now, by heredity of the house of Saul, he becomes instantly an enemy of the state when David becomes king of Israel. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was the custom for the new administration... When the new guys on the block took over in power, they wiped out the old administration so that there would be no rival to the throne that would arise. What this means is that Mephibosheth, at the age of five, becomes a leading enemy of the state. And he thus goes into hiding, just like you and I would have done. We're told in the text that he is living in a place called Lodabar. It's essentially a dot on the map in the middle of nowhere. 
Lodabar literally translated just means no pasture. That's what it means, no pasture. Meaning there's no place at which you can graze for your cattle. There's no place at which you can plant your garden. It is a rocky, airy wilderness. And it's there where he's on the good graces of Makar's house. And it's there where he lives, hoping to live out his days in obscurity, keeping a very low profile. Because if David were to hear that he is alive, what would he do? Well, the standard of the day would be that he would be killed. So you can imagine exactly how Mephibosheth felt when a couple of servants from David show up in Lodabar asking for him. This is his worst nightmare. This is his worst nightmare. The one thing that he's been trying to avoid. Has he not been through enough already? And now this, he's not hurting anyone. He has no coup d'etat planned for the overthrowing of David and the new kingdom. He's now roughly 20 years old. Maybe he's outrun this. No, David has found him. And Mephibosheth undoubtedly is scared out of his mind. Because he naturally would have been thinking... David has come to exercise his heart of revenge on me, the descendant of Saul, who Saul constantly was trying to kill David. This is his moment to make even the score and wipe out the one rival that's left from the house of Saul. But Mephibosheth wouldn't have known this. David's heart is not filled with revenge. No, it's another R word. David's heart is fulfilled, is filled with redemption. When David hears the word Mephibosheth, he doesn't think anger and violence. When David hears the word Mephibosheth, he thinks redemption and love and grace. You see, Mephibosheth in the first part of this story is falling from grace. But as we see, as this story turns, he's one who falls into grace. A very different kind of grace is mentioned here in this passage. It's actually spoken to us there in verse 6 of the text. We're told that Mephibosheth... Here he is trembling, now been brought before the throne room of David. He's in his presence. And we're told in verse 6 that he what? Fell on his face to pay homage to the king. There it is. There it is. He fell on his face. Now, Mephibosheth has been falling, friends. That's That's been Mephibosheth's history. Fifteen years ago, he was dropped by his nurse and he lost his ability to walk. And now he falls on his face. And you know the only thing that's going through his mind is now he's going to lose a lot more than his ability to walk. He's going to lose his life. Because in Mephibosheth's mind, as in our minds, we often think in terms of heredity, our lineage, our social standing. Our kingdoms, our fiefdoms, all of the things worldly that matter to us. We don't want anybody getting in on our things. And he assumes that David would think that way like any normal ancient Near Eastern king. 
get away from my stuff. I don't want anyone encroaching upon my potential authority and rule and reign in this situation. I need to remove all rivals. Certainly he would have thought this. Destroy the competition. That would have been the mindset in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Of course Mephibosheth thinks it's going to happen because he's operating in a worldview, in a mentality, in a thought process that has been portrayed before him on the theater of the world stage. But David doesn't think in terms of heredity. David thinks in terms of hesed. Hesed. Now what in the world do I mean by hesed? Not heredity, but hesedness. Well, we see this here in verses 1, 3, and 7 of the text. It's the key word in the text. It's the word that is translated kindness. Look at it with me in verse 1. Is there still anyone left to the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Look at verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Look at verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Kindness, hesed. Now we read that word and we think kindness. And you, where do we go? Southern niceness. Manners, opening doors, and pouring cups of coffee, and eating cucumber sandwiches. We, we go that direction with regards to social niceties. What is being described here with the word kindness is so far superior to that. It is the, the Bible's strongest word to describe for us the never letting go Love of God in steadfastly pursuing us for all time, covenantally, in love. That's the Bible's word for it, is the word hesed. When David says, I want to know if there's an heir from the lineage of Saul that I can show hesed to, he is doing contradistinction from anything in the ancient Near Eastern world would have ever seen. Instead of me exercising my vengeance... Is there anyone in the house of Saul that I might show my vengeance toward? He says, I want to show my hesed, my never giving up, always faithful, committed to the end, covenantal love. That's what I want to show to the house of Saul. Now, we don't know all that was potentially going on in the context of the scenario of the situation, but we do know that Mephibosheth is on his face. We know that he's fallen. And he probably believes that he's fallen for the last time. But what he doesn't realize is this is not the bitter end of a fall from grace. This is the beginning of his rise as he falls into a deeper grace than he's ever received before. This is the beginning of something fresh and something new. Look at what David says. Verse 7 the first three words that come out of David's mouth are words of protection. He says to him, do not fear. Now just get in Mephibosheth's shoes for a minute. This young man has lived a life of fear. It's why he's in Lodabar. Is that he is afraid of being found out. He's afraid of this moment happening. And it's now come true. So he is rife with fear. His heart's about to jump out of his chest. 
He is so scared to death. And the very first word out of David's mouth with regards to his relationship with Mephibosheth is, you have nothing to fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. There's no need for you to watch your back here. There's no need for you to think and feel like a fugitive because that's what you've been. There's no need for you to act like an enemy of the state who's now been caught because I have brought you in here for entirely different purposes. Do not fear. Protection is the first gift that David gives to Mephibosheth. But notice this secondly, it's a remarkable word. Verse 7, I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father. Now listen to this. He's been in the land of no pasture. <laughs> He's been in the land that's no land. <laughs> He's been in a land that's a forsaken land. He's been in a land that's wilderness. And he goes, I'm going to give you the inheritance that you lost. As the, the grandfather, your grandfather saw your, your father, Jonathan, which would have been bequeathed to them that Ziba now owns here in the text, or is at least stewarding in the text. I'm going to give that to you. Now, let me tell you, friends, Saul owns some land. He didn't have just a little bit of land. He, he was a major landowner. He was the king. So when he says, I'm going to give you Saul's land, Mephibosheth just became likely the richest man in Israel. Because land was money. Land was influence. Now he can have the cattle. Now he can have the garden. He's going to have all of the servants now at his disposal, we're told later in the text. You see what he's doing? He's given Mephibosheth protection. And then you know what he does? He gives him provision. And he gives him the inheritance that would have been his. It's remarkable. And then finally, I want you to see what he says, and this is, should be draw, kind of jaw-dropping for every single one of us. Listen to what he says. And you shall eat at my table always. Now, if David had said, and on top of this, I'm willing to drink a, a glass of sweet tea on the porch with you one time, that would have so far exceeded all of the expectations of the then known world. But that's not what David says. David says, you will sit at my table always. And you may be thinking, which would be true? He's going to eat well for the rest of his life. Yes, he will. That's not what's indicated here in the text, though. Something much deeper. It's the language of hospitality. It is to say, I'm making you one of my family. Everything that is mine is at your disposal from here on out. Right next to my firstborn son, Mephibosheth. Just down the way of the table from my wife and I, Mephibosheth. He's going to be one of the family. What you see happening in this text is a gift of protection, a gift of provision, a gift of position. He has given Mephibosheth the entirety of his life back. This man who's been falling from grace since age five has now found himself falling into grace here in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we're watching someone who was an enemy of the state become an adopted son of the king. We're seeing a radical transformation of the difference between thinking like the world and thinking in Hesed, living in Hesed. Living in the covenantal sacrificial grace of God that is poured out upon us as his church. 
Now, I think that's what we need to actually see from this text. Is that this text is giving us a display of the life of Mephibosheth, the covenant of God, the faithfulness of David in the display and the portrait of it. But it's not simply doing that. It is, it is a picture of the whole pattern of the kingdom of Christ. It's a picture of the gospel that lies at the very center of the kingdom of which we are a part of if you are a follower of him. And that's why we don't just see here a falling from grace and a falling into grace. We see a grace that rises above the falls. That rises above the falls. And to do this, we have to ask this question. Why did David do this? We have to ask that question. Why did David do this? Now, some of you, because you're Bible scholars, you know the answer to this. You remember that we spent time in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We also spent time in 1 Samuel 18. And the, kind of the Rolodex of your mind right now is going back to those. I realized that was a generational assumption with Rolodex, but I didn't, not to offend the younger audience in here. No one knows what a Rolodex is. Some of you do. You're flipping through the, the files and you're finally getting, that's too old too. You're flipping through the computer files and you're doing searches. You're going back. Oh, there I go. I see a few faces nodding now. 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 18. It's there where David, in relationship with Jonathan, makes a covenant. And he, and he makes a covenant with Jonathan and he says, and Jonathan promises, he says to David, David, if, if I die and if you become ruler, and you will because that's what God has promised, Promise me that you won't wipe out my offspring. And David says, I promise. In covenant with you. David is doing this because he's a man of his word. He is a promise keeper. He is a covenant keeper. As we look at this passage, he is one who does not very quickly or easily dismiss those arrangements that he walks into, which is what we were talking about just a little bit ago with the confession of sin, weren't we? When we say something, we, we do it, right? No, we don't. We often fall so short, don't we? What are the reasons that we often break our promises? Well, it gets risky. Is this risky? This is hugely risky. David is inviting the house of Saul to come live with him. Have you heard sleeping with the enemy? That's what we have here. He is drawing in the person who could very easily turn the kingdom against David. One who has the leverage to be able to do that and coming from the house of Saul. David is drawing in and he's willing to take the gospel risk in love to Mephibosheth. Why? Because he's made a covenant to Jonathan. Let me also ask you, why is it we often break our promises? One is risk. You know what another reason is? We don't see how it benefits us anymore. <laughs> don't we often make promises because we think kind of on the underside, I see a way in which that's going to bless me? How, how is it blessing David to get Mephibosheth? Not at all. In fact, David is, in a very real sense, incurring more responsibility and more work by taking into his midst one who was the despised, the rejected, the marginalized, the crippled, and making him a son. But that's the way covenant love works, my friends. Covenant love is not the kind of love that you go, I will do this if it makes me feel good. And it gives me butterflies. 
It will do this if it benefits me. I will do this if it doesn't get too risky. I will do this if it's not too hard. If those are the premises of the way in which we relate to one another or the way in which the Christ church begins to engage in the world, then very quickly you will fall off the radar of the kind of covenant love that's being described here in the text. That's love defined by the world's standards, not defined by the Hesed, the standard of God's love for his people. Are you as grateful as I am that Jesus as he approached the cross, was not primarily concerned in asking his father, I, you know, I'm just not feeling this right now. I don't, I'm not perceiving at the moment how this is going to benefit me. This feels very risky. Jesus is moving with the heart of Hesed as he moves towards the redemption of his people. And that means he is willing to die. He is willing to lay it all on the line. He puts every single cost forward so that he can redeem his people. And that's exactly what we see in the spirit of David. But let me tell you, friends, it's, um, it's not just David here. I, this is a wonderful moment in redemptive history with David. But let me tell you, David's not always going to keep these promises. You remember this? There's going to be some scenarios in the future where we're going to go, that lacks hesed. Right? This passage is a beautiful portrait of it, but the heart that David is doing this from is not his heart. It's the Spirit of the Lord that's come in and do this work in this moment for David. Because the real hesed is the hesed that has come and will come in greater measure continually in the future through the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you how it's already foreshadowed, and I think, why it is that David can give this love away, just for a moment. We need to ask the question in closing, what, what character creates a heart that would live this way? What kind of character is needed? What kind of circumstance is needed to create a heart that would live this way, Right? How did David get there, in other words? How do we get there? Let me, let me tell you, this is where God's hesed begins to invade this story. I want you to think of the story of David. David in 1 Samuel 16 wasn't even invited to the party. When Samuel came into town to see Jesse the Bethlehemite and to anoint the next king of Israel, and they parade the beautiful men before Samuel, and he goes, no, it's none of these. Where is do you have any other sons? Yeah, there's one, you know, the runt. He's out there in the field keeping, keeping sheep. Bring him. And he brought him into the context and anointed David in that moment. And we're told that the Spirit of God rushed upon David. Now, you know what's happening in that moment? God is choosing his servant and he is providing all of what the servant needs. David has experienced the provision of our God but he's also experienced the protection of our God. In the very next passage, in 1 Samuel 17, who does David face? Goliath. 
And with one stone and a primitive slingshot, he slays the hero of the Philistine army. And he goes on to become one of the greatest, the greatest warrior on Israelite history, so much so that we spin the songs. David has killed his ten thousands and Saul has only killed his thousands. David knew what it was like to be protected by God, even as he killed a lion as it sought to attack his sheep. He knew what it was like to experience the protection of God. He knew what it was like to experience the provision of God. But do you see where he is now? He's on the throne. He knows what it's like to receive the position of God. For seeing God fulfill his promises to David over the course of those 20 years and now let him be the man of God ruling on the throne. David can come to this place not because he made a promise and he grunted it out. He made a promise that God then supplied him with the grace that was going to be needed all along the way, pouring it into his heart. So when the moment came for him to say yes to the fulfillment of his promises, he poured into Mephibosheth what God had already poured into him. That's what's going on in this text. That's the power of this text. That's the remarkableness of this text is that we don't give away, friends, what we've not received. And when the Lord pours the hesed into us, we in response to the transformation that comes, pour our hesed into the Mephibosheths all around us. That's the call of God on our lives. And it's the beautiful call of God. Doesn't it capture your mind? And your imagination, is it not the most beautiful thing imaginable? Do you not want to be the person who's been loved like this? You are the person who's been loved like this. Do you see? Do you know that? You are. You see, the name of Mephibosheth in the Hebrew, it's, it's, a, it's a frightening name. It's, it's a name that literally means a shameful thing. Here is Mephibosheth who has lived a life of shame. He's lived a life of attack. His name means a shameful thing. And shame comes before the throne of Israel. Before the one who can adjudicate judgment on this enemy of the state. And shame meets love's covering. Shame meets hesed. Not because Meshivosheth, I'm going to get it right, Mephibosheth, he earned it, but because David had had the hesed of God poured into his life and he now could look upon the shame and he could welcome it into his family. Don't you see what's happening here? This is the covenant of our God to us. For our name is shame and guilt before Almighty God, is it not? And aren't you afraid as an enemy of the state? Shouldn't you just stay in Lodabar? It's very risky being here this morning in the presence of God, holy as he is. But you wouldn't come unless he'd summoned you, and he did. And he summoned you and he says to you, if you were in Christ, do not fear. For I'm going to give you all the land that you lost, the Garden of Eden. 
I'm going I'm to give you all the provision that you lost, all the trees of the garden. I'm going to give you the position that you lost, walking in the cool of the day, in the presence of God. I've got a plan of which I'm going to give to you everything that you've lost and more. And I'm going to do it by giving myself for you and paying the penalty that keeps you out and now, by God's grace, will draw you in. You see, that's exactly what David, or excuse me, that's exactly what Paul said, didn't he, in Ephesians 2.12? For we were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Mephibosheth. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ, by the covenant fulfilled in his blood. For he himself is our peace. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This is the most remarkable truth, friends, in, in heaven and on earth. You're never going to find anything sweeter than this glorious gospel that we're looking at this morning. And let me tell you, when you have received Christ and you have received the power of His Word, the Word that we are looking at this morning, there is no way that you can continue walking past the Mephibosheths of this life. To the degree that you have grasped the reality of this truth and it has had transformation upon your life, to that degree will you be a spreader and a liver of this reality. And so in this room, we are, as Tony led us in confession earlier, we are asking the Lord to give us His love. Our failure to live out this covenant love is a failure to really grasp the love that Christ has given to us on the cross and in the victory of the resurrection. But the encouragement is, friends, is he summoned you here today and he knew all that before you came in. And he still says to you, do not fear. And you let the astonishment of that grace drive you into the service of this king. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you please now confirm these truths to the degree that they are truthful to the degree that they are consistent with your will and desire, apply these truths individually to the measure of the hearts in this room and collectively to us as a community for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name.